Well, welcome back to the 99th episode of the Brew Theology Podcast. That is so crazy. I know. We're at 99. Crazy. We're talking about stoicism tonight. We've got some people back. We should do some giveaways for the 100th. Ooh. Like, now, now, now you got to be quick. Like, so the next person who does what emails us and says, ooh, asks, yeah, like on a Twitter question. or something. Maybe, maybe you have to ask us a really good question. Yeah, and then we could talk be, about it. Yeah. We could have like a call-in live show. So you have to actually email, or you can tweet at us too. Yeah. So at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, and Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Also. Ryan at Brew Theology, Janelle at BrewTheology.org for email if you want to do this. That's like snail mail today is email. Right. So the best question can get a prize. Who's going to mail this prize and what's the <laughs> prize going to be? Or do we keep it secret? Oh, I think we have to keep it secret. Yeah. It Though it should be something Colorado brew related. Oh, I was going to say Colorado related. Then we could we can't oh. email certain substances it's a federal no, offense. No, no, not those. We would be... Brew related. Okay, okay. Not smoke related. <laughs> or even edibly related. Right. Sounds good. So at the by the end of this episode, if we have two episodes in this and we get to the 100th, then yeah. somebody here is going to come up with something. Yes. A we'll, prize. We'll have some sort of prize for yep. somebody out there for something. So Janelle, Janelle and I are back, obviously. But we also have Elizabeth Humphrey, who's back. Back again. Hello. And she wrote the content. Woo! Loving the hand that life deals you. Look at that's a great subtitle. Sto- hashtag stoicism. And Amy's here. Hello, Hi, Amy. Good to have Amy here. So uh, what we're gonna do, like just brief overviews of our background, really quick. Go over the guidelines and jump in. There are nine. Yeah, there are nine little like kind of headings here that we can dive into to kind of give the audience and listeners context of what we're talking about tonight. And a lot of you know my story. Grew up Southern Baptist Evangelical, state of Texas. Deconstructed that over the past 20 years. Gleaned from the Anabaptist, the UMC Wesleyan tradition, the mystical Pentecostal parts, and the first century uh, Jesus Jewish parts. So I'm a evolving, open-tent, Anabaptist, Methodocostal Jesus guy with also process and liberation theology leanings. And tonight I'm drinking a gin and tonic. That is a good way to go. Someday I'll like IPAs if we keep it up. Hey, I'm drinking your favorite drink. I know, so I'm going to have to... I'm, it's going to happen. i got to work harder at this. I have become a gin lover. Be, probably around like May or June, you gave me that bottle. Uh-huh. I was like, this is ridiculous. Yep. Hendrix. Hendrix is the bomb. So good. So good. So I'm Janelle. Uh, I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene and moved out here about six years ago and went to an independent church for a while and then uh, now attend an ELCA church. I've had a small house church and uh, have been pretty happy with the, the label progressive Christian. But when I get antsy about Christian, um, I've been floating around the idea of being a redemptive feminist. And that might have some of something to do with the book project that by the time you hear this may actually be for sale in Amazon. Woo-hoo! And if you listen to episodes 90 well, 98, yep. you can hear uh, us hear some talk about that. it and that's called women experiencing faith. And you can find out more at women letter X faith.com. And uh, we'll be also launching a podcast here in the fall eventually. And um, so that's a big focus of mine is women's equality in the church and in life in general. And that's a huge part of my faith expression as well. So 
redemptive feminist. We're going to see if it sticks or not. It's kind of a long hashtag, though. I'm Amy, and I'm relatively new to um, brew theology, but um, I have a pretty um, Midwestern, rugged individualistic upbringing um, that was, uh, in terms of Christianity, pretty fundamentalist and strict and dogmatic and all that fun stuff. So I've, I'm kind of um, exploring other opportunities to uh, fellowship and express my faith and um, explore what other people believe and, and compare that with what uh, my understanding of Christianity is. So I'm looking forward to this podcast and having more conversations. Awesome. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Elizabeth, and I am also from the Midwest and grew up a severely strict fundamentalist. And through the years, I dabbled in less fundamentalism, and then I moved to evangelicalism and had a brief stint in charismatic churches and then a liberal church. And now I just feel like I'm spending all my time unlearning a lot of things that don't make sense to me anymore. Yeah. All right, so we have some conversation guidelines, always important to go over. No soapboxes allowed, meaning nobody gets the last word. Please, there's a distinction between being passionate and having a soapbox. Those are two mm -hmm. different things. Number two, respect all others and their viewpoints, even if you think what they say is ridiculous. Three, extend courtesy by listening well. As they say in counseling, active listening. Active, active listening. listening, yes. And the number four, everything is up for discussion so rabbit trails will abound. What I think what I love about what we do, lots of things, this one thing in particular, this is the second out of third time I'll have this conversation. With This is this, this group is different from the last group, and next, well, this coming Thursday will be different from this group and the one before. Right. And so rabbit trails are all over the place. I think that's why this, this is always fun, because it's the same topic and the same questions, but yet, hey, one person can throw the conversation in a whole new way. So we have... Uh, this group will never be the same again. You ever have those moments? Like, yeah. this is fatalism right yep. here, guys. This is it. Never this again. This moment was determined. <laughs> but and that's, if we, that's if we try to recreate cool, this conversation. Or was it preordained? <laughs> what were you saying? But that's another thing that's cool about this is, I mean, I've had some really insightful, meaningful, altering conversations around different topics where I have come away basically permanently thinking about something different from a conversation I've had with someone that often comes from a completely different background than I did that I wouldn't meet in any other forum than this. Me too. And that's such an exciting part of what we do at Brew Theology because everyone's welcome and everyone can come and be part of the discussion. Unless you are an eggplant emoji. <laughs> that's true. And then we that's say, true. kindly, no. sorry, you were acting like an eggplant emoji. Yeah, don't do that. I think we should get those t-shirts. I think uh -huh. we should. Uh -huh. Those would sell. <laughs> yeah, they would. You know, in about 30 minutes, people are going to go, oh, I get it. Uh -huh. <laughs> yep. Okay. So, Elizabeth, you wrote this content. Mm -hmm. And I know you're not a stoic, but you're drawn to it. So, mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of curious, like, why, why this topic? Um, I chose this because I started reading. You know how when you're a good Baptist, you do a daily devotional. You read the Bible and then a little booklet to go with it. Well, I found this book called The Daily Stoic. And it's got a quote from a Stoic and then a daily reading on it. And it, it was just such a neat way to start the day to focus your mind on something more important than just worrying about work. And so I started reading that 
book about two years ago, and I still read it in the mornings, not every morning, but quite a bit. And I think maybe because of my Midwestern roots, and then because I was raised as a Christian, and there's so many links between Stoic thinking and Christianity, that it's still something I'm really drawn to this philosophy. So, like, there's my utmost for his highest. This would be called. I don't know, you could <laughs> yep. like come up with something pretty my clever. My utmost for the Stoics. <laughs> <laughs> cool. My reality for the Stoics. Yes. <laughs> so this is uh, we're talking years before Christ in the Greco, even before even the Roman world, the Greeks and then the Romans adopted some stuff. I think it's important though to kind of go through some of these subtitled kind of bits. Maybe we should. Want to read them and then yeah, kind of before work. we dive in. So, kind of what is stoicism? What is a stoic? So, number one, you had said that uh, th- these. So, these, by the way, uh, these are your clever titles, and I my I, corny titles because I'm from <laughs> Iowa. Corny. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, stoicism, as you say, it teaches people to develop self control and courage in the face of adversity. So, the first thing that you had said is, if it weren't for bad luck. I'd have no luck at all telling us that Stoics recommend getting ready for misfortune by preparing for it. So for example, uh, temporarily give up whatever you most fear losing so that you can learn that you will survive it. Examples. Do you fear poverty? Then choose to live in absolute poverty as much as possible for a few days. All right. And then we can, we can go back to these later. So then number two, turn that frown upside down Turn obstacles and problems into opportunities for personal growth. See the upside to them. Make them teachable moments. For example, if you constantly deal with someone who is a selfish jerk, realize that they give you the opportunity to learn patience and to learn how to not punch someone. I added that part. Number three, everything is dust in the wind. Remember that everything is temporary. Everything changes. And you are only a tiny cog in the wheel of reality. Run down the list of those who felt intense anger at something, the most famous, the most unfortunate, the most hated, the most whatever. Where is all that now? Smoke, dust, legend. Or not even a legend. Think of all the examples and how trivial the things we want to so passionately are. Marcus Aurelius. And number four, I like big perspectives and I cannot lie. Uh, when viewing any circumstances, step back and look at it from a broader perspective. Remember how small and humble your part in the world is. And the quote by uh, Epictetus, I think I pronounced that right, start modestly with the little things that bother you. Has your child spilled something? Have you misplaced your wallet? Say to yourself, coping calmly with this inconvenience is the price I pay for my inner serenity. For freedom from perturbation, you don't get something for nothing. Mm, Child spilling something. (laughs) That happened. Uh Just today? Is it two days ago? And it was queso. Oh. And it went all over the couch. And I, I was not or proud Ryan. of my actions. Uh-huh. Or I, actually my, my words, which are actions. But You, you let the Stoics And actually, down. so when I read that, I'm thinking of like, oh, that happened to me. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Stoics. <laughs> I made my child feel bad for spilling queso. <laughs> and I even said, to be careful. But so I'm having expectations of what uh-huh. careful means. It's just a couch and it's just queso. Mm-hmm. Number five. Whoopee, we're all going to die. 
Stoicism believes that you should reflect often on your eventual death. That reflection allows you to more fully embrace whatever days you have left. And a quote here from Seneca is, let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. I wonder how he would feel about, like, endless email and Facebook notifications. They, they know no end of the day. Number six, no power to the people. Decide what you have control, power over, and what you don't. You can't control some things that happen in your life, but you can control the choices you make. From Marcus Aurelius. If you are pained by external things, it is not that they disturb you, but your own judgment of them, and it is in your power to wipe out that judgment now. You have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this, and you will find strength. Number seven, Dear Diary. Stoics believe in reflecting on their days in writing. They would encourage you to journal each day and address questions such as, Did I become a better person today? Did I curb a bad habit? Did I develop a better habit? Were my actions right and just? How can I improve? Number eight is, well, that sucks. Things are going to get sucky in your life, so prepare for it. Even the luckiest person in life experiences problems, the loss of possessions, the loss of income, health issues, the death of loved ones, etc. Stoics often speak of living in accordance with nature, and their belief is that reality, or nature, the natural world, is often a harsh, brutal place. And lastly, number nine, it is what it is. Accept and even embrace whatever is happening in your life. Make the best of whatever happens and learn from it. From Epictetus, do not seek for things to happen the way that you want them to. Rather, wish that what happens happen the way it happens. Then you will be happy. And I Don't should worry, point out that those, those nine ones are based on um, some insight from the Daily Stoic website, which is where those rough ideas came from. Cool. Okay, so y'all ready to rock and roll? Jump in? I think so. Let's go. There's a lot here. So lot let's here. just start, start with question number one, see where it takes us. There are like four questions in question number one, but we're going to tackle these accordingly. And, you know, if we record for an hour on one and never get to two, three, and four, then it was meant to happen. Right. So we still smile and be happy and reflect <laughs> on our good discussion. Uh, yeah. But we didn't get it all done. We didn't. <laughs> Stoics. So they believe that humans are unhappy because we rely on emotions rather than logic. I'm going to have a hard time with this one. I'm a bit of an emotional person. Uh, there are a few Vulcans at the table. <laughs> yes. That's what, I, that's what I call my wife. We bring her down and we'll have another one. Uh, so it's true. And I, I do that to, uh, in an endearing way to her face. If you she like were here. the ears, don't you? Yes. <laughs> so Stoics believe that evil isn't real. The problem is that we simply don't understand reality and the nature of life. All right, guys. So how, how does that idea stack up against your own life experiences and then how does it relate to the religion specifically and the theology that you grew up in and the one that you perhaps practice now? And we'll leave it there for now. This is one of the, the hardest things about Stoic belief that I don't... Uh, actually, I like the part that 
uh, we shouldn't rely on emotions so much and rather logic because I, I think you can just be so overwhelmed with emotions that you're stuck in a bad place. So I'm a little Spock-like in that way. But the idea that there isn't really evil, it's just our perception of it, does not mesh at all with my understanding of the world or or what I've seen of it from the big things like genocide to the little things, uh, not so little things like children getting cancer, things like that. So I, I struggle to know whether there's a big E evil or a small E evil, but I think there is. There are just some things that I cannot say are good or neutral. They're bad to me. No, I mean, I think honestly a great example comes out of um, the news right now. Um, so as people have been talking about the allegations of rape and sexual assault against the Supreme Court justice, um, they... I've heard many people say, well, boys will just be boys. That's just how it is. That's coming out of the same mouths of the people that tell young women that if you even sometimes kiss someone or touch their hand, you are worthless and used up and impure. You can't have it both ways. Either we're all working towards purity or we're not. And you can't excuse this because of gender and then act like it's okay. Like it, the, the, just the inconsistency of that whole thing is driving me nuts. And I think that that makes it really hard to say, oh, you just don't understand the nature of reality. Well, if the nature of reality is that men can't control themselves, then, then maybe they need to not be able to get people pregnant. Um, we can fix that. It's reversible. It could have a timeline. Like those aren't complicated things but we don't do them because we have these ideas about how reality works that oppresses some and gives liberty to others. And so I, I have a real, this doesn't gel well with me at all. Like, is there an evil that causes things to happen or an evil that is a force of its own? I don't know about that, but there are definitely evil behaviors. And um, if we're responsible for everything else in our own lives, then the responsible answer to something like what's going on right now is, yeah, I was, I did do something evil and I'm sorry and I'm working to be better, not writing it off as, um, well, that's just the way boys are. Yeah. Writing it uh, off as you don't understand human nature. Right. Yeah. But, so isn't, isn't so much the, the desire of the male to, to feel and, and, uh, be sort of provoked in a certain way. It's it's the actions that what we would call evil, whether it's big E or small E, as you said. Right. It's a word that we have. It's the only word that we know. We could come up with other words too, but there is that binary of good and evil. Mm -hmm. and do you think stoicism is trying to, to get rid of binaries here? I think from what I've read, they didn't believe in it to begin with. And if they're having emotions rather than logic, I reframe it in my mind in terms of expectations. Not expectations that, that we're not equal, but the expectations that if somebody's doing something that is viewed by as bad or evil by others, that there's going to be justification and dismissal of the charges and a, a refusal to accept responsibility right. for that or make amends to it. Because if I, if I, we, we've heard the expression false equivocation, you know, equivocations right. where, well, that way, you know, if, if you want equality applied universally, then you have nothing to complain about. And I think, I think that's where we run into issues of expectation for people who believe there should be, quote-unquote, truth, justice in the American way, 
and people who think that applies only to them and those who are like them. Yeah, I think the this, the, you know, it says the problem is that we simply don't understand reality and the nature of life. I guess my counter question would be from what perspective? Because that all could, all those definitions would change depending on what your perspective in the situation was. Well, if they believe in a, in a higher being and a lower being, and the lower being is what was their version of evil, then wouldn't they think that the evil comes out of ignorance? You would hope. Ignorance is the ultimate evil. I think at the end of the day, they would then say, but it really doesn't matter what happened. What matters is how you think about it because you have no control over what happened. And, and a big part of me agrees. Bad stuff happens in all of our life, and we don't control it. But then you have to decide what you're going to do with that. So a right. big part of me agrees with that. But the danger in this kind of thinking for me is that you just negate all of the experiences that people have. Right. Because it's past, so there's nothing we can do. Right. Well, it wasn't past when it happened, yeah. and you weren't able, you know, you can't use this in both spaces. Mm -hmm. And there, there has to be, I'm not sure, it would be interesting to find out exactly what the Stoics believed about the need for justice, because I... I really can't answer that question, but in my Western mind, there has to be an, a call for justice when bad things are done. And is there a yeah. difference between what's beyond our control and what we're helpless to affect change in? If, if, if it's beyond our control of what happened in the past, that might be true, but it doesn't mean we don't have influence over what may happen mm -hmm. going forward. Yeah, excellent. So what about your personal theology and religion growing up? How did it mesh with this idea of taking away evil and then dealing with nature as it is? Well, if you, if you grew up Christian like all of us at this table, I would guess most of us grew up believing in a, well, maybe I'm speaking too much for everybody, but I grew up believing in a big E evil demon devil, um, true evil versus God thing. It's good to have something, a bean, if you will, in this case, to Satan to put it all. Yeah, it's all Satan. What was that? That Dana Carvey skit, SNL? Could it be Satan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think in some ways it's nice to have somebody to blame. It was Satan. The devil mm -hmm. made me do it. Mm -hmm. Did you guys talk a lot about the devil in the Nazarene world? Um, Not from the pulpit, but definitely in like christian culture there was a lot of that um and i mean i definitely remember being afraid of like a red sunrise or red moon you know what did that mean what was that about i didn't really encounter that until i went to college and was dealing with a lot of charismatics who were very aware of evil and demons and all of that kind of stuff and to this day like i I can't deny some of the experiences that I had and I've talked about on here before, but to try to explain them now from anything that I would accept is logical. Like I, I can't. And so they happened, they felt real, but I don't know what was real about them and what wasn't. If there's an answer to that question. Um, it's hard. 
I think, well, I think for us too, like, because I came from a holiness tradition, just the striving for perfection, the striving that all action be perfect, that all behaviors and choices be perfect. I think, again, that just gets super complicated all of a sudden if we start talking about, like, why do bad things happen? Um, uh, the weirdest one that came up in my thoughts lately was, if you were in prayer ministry, there was a narrative that... Um, that if you were in prayer ministry, you were braver and more sure of your faith and more grounded because you were going to be attacked more by Satan because you were on the front lines doing the work against him. So he was going to attack you more. And like the more I think about that, I'm like, that's so confusing. So you're basically pre-explaining away if something bad happens to those people that do prayer regularly, like we've already pre-explained why bad things happen to them. It's because they're on the front line. Wait, but why do we have that theology? Like whose idea was that? Yeah, it's no nowhere in the Bible. There's no basis for it. It's a good excuse if you have a night out with the hookers. <laughs> That's never happened. Oh, I'm the only one. Oh my goodness. Oh, that All brings right. that brings See, to the, mind. See, my a, my emotional comical self, the Stokes would hate me. Oh no, that that brings to mind a <laughs> famous preacher who got caught with hookers that I I remember hearing about, but I, I think when it does, but it does, um, does happen to people. Will they'll, they'll yeah, say that? Well, they we, say, we joke about it. They yeah. will say they I'm because I'm they a were... preacher and I was in the and the you know the highlight of everybody's. You and so Satan went after me harder. Yep, yep. And I've heard it said by people so many times. Satan was crouching like a lion, ready yep. to devour, pounce and devour me. Just was setting you up for failure because <laughs> yeah. you're on the front line. So then, what do we do with theology that becomes what we would say is toxic, abusive, oppressive? Because, Burn it down. because Stoics would would you know let's let's say they come across somebody who is uh, who is a well it's a Christian who has these beliefs what I mean what are they what does a Stoic have to say to somebody who has toxic theology I don't know well that sucks they would they would say your mind is controlling what you're thinking and so when you're thinking these toxic thoughts there's no reality to it it's coming from your mind. And they would say, train it out of your mind, I think. Yeah. Because they really believed in mind control, controlling your thoughts and turning them to things that were logical rather than... Well, in number six, you don't have any power. You can only control some of the things that happen in your life and the choices you make. Um, if they disturb you, that's your judgment of them. Like, that gets really keep really fast in terms of toxic theology because that's exactly what they would tell you you're just not obedient enough you just don't love god enough you're just not faithful enough this you if you're questioning this that's your disobedience speaking and so they they create an environment where abuse breeds abuse and you can't see your way out of it i i think the muddy the waters get really muddied from from just the few things that i've heard there is a difference between making choices and blaming god or the devil when something happens and taking responsibility for own behavior well, you hope so and i think there's a difference between um what did you just say that that there's I no control um that that you're not 
loving God enough, because in, in answer to the earlier question, um, the the understanding that I've grown up with and I still relatively have is that it's not about loving God enough because we're limited in our ability to love mm. and the heart is wicked and, you know, these kind of things. But um, the idea is that there's a guidance that we're gifted with and and our daily practice of seeking forgiveness as well as offering forgiveness as well as um, being willing to listen. And I don't like the word submit because that's also been abused in context yeah. that we're not submitting to authorities in an organized religion. And that's where I think the theology gets skewed is, and I'm sorry, men in particular have put themselves as I speak for God. Yep. And anytime that happens, a red flag raises for me because I am not submitting to an authority that is human. I, the only authority I submit to is one that I believe is the higher power above us all. Yeah. And I think those are the things that get muddied and skewed again, because the human element within any faith organization, when it's used to justify what everybody knows is immoral behavior, any time there's not personal responsibility taken for individual choices and actions, that's when it's an abuse of the authority position that they hold. Yeah. It's a good word. So Stoics believe in humans that can be perfected by reason and logic. So we can, we can be perfected by this mind, which is funny because that was before science. <laughs> so do you, do, yeah. you, do y'all feel that becoming perfect is possible? Let's define perfect in a second. And how does the idea of becoming perfect mesh with your understanding and experience well, of actually, human nature? I think we have to define it first. I think, I think we do. Yeah, I think we do. Because, yes. um, so in the tradition I came from, and this varies depending on whether you had an American holiness or you had Wesleyan holiness. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you go ahead and laugh. Cause <laughs> sorry. That's Sorry. totally fair. <laughs> so in American holiness, like the, the purpose of that movement was a desire to be made like God. And, but it was the way it was articulated and the way the theology developed was flawed in its core foundations. And so it was kind of a pursuit of perfect living, of perfect action. Um, now, Wesleyans would tell you that that wasn't the intent uh, that the intent of Wesley was that we get to this place in life where kind of our default choices, our default reactions would always be the godly response, like would always be towards the good. Um, but in that, that there's still space for um, all of the things that we leave undone or the things where we make a decision, but we don't have all the information so that there's still flaws. Like we're still going to have some flaws um, but in terms of our conscious decision-making, those would all be perfect. So I guess the reason I push on that is when, when, it, when they say perfect, do they mean everything about a human is perfect? Or do they mean perfect but for this category of things? Like, no, I think they really believed that, that you could become perfect. From what I read of them, they were... Holiness of their day, I guess. Yeah, they been really there, done that. I don't that. buy it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. 
I love I love um, Spock, but even the dude had a temper that came out eventually. Well, and the other question is, do you even want to be perfect? And it doesn't appeal to me to be perfect because I know people who are as perfect as they can be in the Christian tradition that they live in. And they're I wouldn't irritating. Wanna, yeah, they're irritating, and I wouldn't want to be them, and I don't like to hang out with them on a Friday night. Is that what humans want to be? I don't know. I, I know some people are better at striving perf- that yeah. for perfection than I am, but it's not something I've ever wanted. So what about, rather than using the word perfect, being content in your own skin, knowing who you are, what you were supposed to do in this world, fulfilling the true nature of, of your identity but that, with you, within whatever roles you've been given. So, I mean, you, you could be, it doesn't matter if you're in ministry as a pastor or you're a CEO or you're you know, like an accountant or you're a stay-at-home parent, like whatever role, it doesn't matter. Like, but you're content in that role, doing what you should be doing in that role. And you're not losing your cool and losing your shit over what, you know, what the external I, I don't know. I think that we maybe we could have a better word than perfection because th- there's a lot of baggage, and I hear it from you, Janelle and Elizabeth, and I, I as well. Because growing up Baptist, you're saved by grace, but you're never good enough. There was right. that, and and that was that perfection piece. Or well, what cr- is that horrible verse? Be perfect as Christ is perfect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. we're gonna get we're yeah. gonna get bad uh, comments from me saying what is that horrible verse? But that's a verse. Yeah, that that's that's actually me as a kid. It's like yeah. what. I can't be that. But that was about loving your enemies. Yeah. So you have no control over your enemies, but you can, I mean, Jesus has blessed them, you know, and pray for them. Mm-hmm. Turn Ooh. the other cheek. I, mean, that's, I think that that's a level of perfection that most people, that's a, that's a great goal for humanity. Mm-hmm. Interesting because I, <laughs> the, the, the frame of the word perfect in Christianity versus in, in the world that I grew up in, being perfect in it, never good enough. I, I have a lot of involvement with music, and there was always that striving to make that mm-hmm. song or that piano piece mm-hmm. or whatever. You were always looking for a way to, to make it the best that it could be. But once the time the performance came, it was what it was at the time, and it was never perfect, but there was always that striving to see if you could... And, and the motivation for it depended on the musician, of course. Um, uh which for certain in, personality types, that's deadly because it, it certainly can be. If it, if you don't perform it perfect in that moment, then clearly you were not enough. Like, well, where I was going yeah. with this is the 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 perfection of Christ though is a little bit different context mm-hmm. because then you have to ask yourself, well, how was Christ perfect? And he was almost perfect because of the times that he used his human human humanity versus when he could have used his godly power. And so to almost uh, strive for the, the best decision you can make at the time with the knowledge that you have to why. Why was he here? For, you know, then you can go into those discussions of, you know, glorifying God or um, um, re- the redemption of man, you know. So if our desire is to be the best we can at the moment that we have, I think maybe that phrase, be the best we can, is my understanding of perfection. If God is love, well, then you read the love chapter. I'm going to strive to be patient and kind and not boast and not be proud. 
And I'm not saying I achieve perfection, but it's certainly something to strive for, which is a different context because it also then affects our relationships. And don't we want to have the best relationships that we can have with God and with each other? I, I like that better. I personally, I think the word perfect has obviously either it's been hijacked or it's just been misunderstood, uh, but clearly there's baggage with the word perfect. <laughs> I think several terms that the Stoics use, there's real baggage and, and misunderstanding because they talk about moral behavior. Well, if you grew up as I did, the very word moral gets under my skin and itches like a chigger gets under your skin yeah. because Worst. because you you never know what's moral. One person's got a definition of it here. One and so that word causes problems for some of us. And then they talk about living in concept in reality and living with nature. And that sounds great by our standards. We think, well, yeah, we should be at one with nature. But they didn't mean the environment. They meant accepting human nature for what it was and the reality of it. So there is some. Mm it's been hard for me to understand what they mean by some of their terms. And maybe that's part of the problem I have with the word perfect is maybe I'm not understanding some nuance they're giving, but the word just doesn't sit right with me because it seems impossible. So to use the same word that you used earlier, what's the moral base, the moral compass? You may hate that word and that's okay. But I even think Tony Soprano had... I'm mean, going to use head because I think he got offed. Yeah, he was we'll dead. Never, was... We'll never know, but I, think he did. Oh, no. I think, but I think he had a moral compass. Did he have yeah. a code of ethics or did he have a moral compass? Because those two are not the same thing. I think that he had a very oh. flexible code of ethics. Yeah. If you watch it. <laughs> bada bing, bada bing, yeah. Oh, was Tony perfect? Most would say who, who live in the binary world of good and evil. No, he was awful. He was toxic. He was cheated on his wife and he killed people in his family and... But even Tony, though, from a day-to-day basis, if you go back and watch those Soprano episodes, like he, there was a part of him that was guided by something, and it was, it was what he thought was good or right or, or was driving him. This is the scary part, because what gives humans universally our compass? And this is when you get into the Christian versus atheism debate, which is ridiculous at times, But because you have people who are like, well, I follow the God of, of Jesus or the, the God of the Jews or the Hindu gods, and... Uh, the Buddhists just say, well, there is no God, so it's the inner self. And then the atheist, he's like, well, we're all, you know, whatever. It's all good. As long as you love your neighbor and you treat your wife okay, we're all, we're all cool here. So this, this is the part that's, that's difficult, I think. Like stoicism, where, where is the moral base and the moral compass? And then how do we transfer that today? Who, who, has, who has the right of way here? Who gets to claim that higher ground? And that's the debate in America right now. I read something about stoicism today that talked about even if you lose your material goods, somebody steals them, destroys them, whatever, that the, the internal reflection, that nothing can really be taken from you that you have inside you, kind of like the idea of education. Nobody can take your education away from you. And if your goal, the perfection that they talk about, is about perfecting yourself inside you, then that can never be taken away. And if you meet somebody like Tony Soprano... It doesn't matter what he does because he can't take away what you have inside. And I thought that was a really, that's almost Buddhist in that terms of, you know, when they say, um, you know, this too shall pass. That, that whatever 
might be perceived as somebody giving to you or somebody taking something away from you emotionally or physically or otherwise, that there, there's very much of a, it's not that I don't care and have emotions about it, but what, what have they really been able to take from me? Nothing that can't be replaced. Kind of almost like the idea of Job, where he had so much loss, and yet it was all, all given back to him and then some. If there's, I want to make a comparison. There's doesn't like that, though. Jesus and, echoes that as well. Yeah, but I think that we also have to own that there are a lot of people in our culture and in our the world around us that they just they don't have a lot there to draw from and that it's not a fault of their own. It may be a fault of um the oppression or their state in the world or their class or um things that happen beyond their control, losing parents, losing family, um there's some privilege in that that I don't like now, like hearing you say that right now, because I feel like, yeah, that's true. If you've been able to have the time and space in life to reflect on those things and develop an internal narrative and um, be educated and all of those things. But there are so many people around us, they don't have time for that shit. Like I'm trying to keep my belly from growling, and I'm trying to get to tomorrow. And yeah, if you take my things, like that may be all I have left. Because I know a lot of people where just that I'm alive, that's not enough. Like, why am I here if every every day and every moment is suffering? What is the point of me being here? Um, yeah, that, that hits me differently I, right I now. I do want to clarify, that's what I read about what Stoics believe. Yeah, no, I know. I okay. totally, I totally get it. I'm just like, but that, that to me speaks of privilege in our parlance today. Well, is there something to be looking at at the Greek culture then that they had the, mm. what they called the citizens, like in the Roman Empire, yeah. and then they had those that were not citizens. Yep. And maybe they were referring to those that were citizens having the application yep. of Stoicism, whereas they weren't concerned about Everyone citizens and, and, I, and I get huh, that, that sound. Wow, that's not <laughs> familiar you, at all. Do you, do you? I mean, we can say that this will depend upon each person in any given context, and you can nothing that we're saying right now is like you. You can claim to be universal. That said, I'm gonna devil's advocate push back a bit about what you were saying, Janelle, and say if you go to a lot of third world countries, and not every single third world country and every single person right. in that country has this attitude. But from what I think a lot of people have experienced when they go over there to help as the privileged Western white person typically is they go back home after they have helped these people, so to speak, and they're amazed of the joy, the love, yeah. the benevolence, all, all of which they lack in their own heart. Even though they have money and they have gifts and they have an education, they come back home and they're like, why am I so depressed as the privileged person where somebody who has nothing yeah. has this joy? that the Stoics are speaking of. And I mean, and I can only speak from my own experience of living in the Caribbean for just two years. And I can say that these children that I would interact with on a daily basis, they didn't have anything. They were way happier than me. And it is a wake up call. So what if if there's a a flip on that one? So the- Sure, there could be. The people who who have all the stuff and the knowledge and the wealth and the resources and they're the ones that are more depressed. So there's a reason why Western society, I mean, a lot of us are, well, it's a highly medicated society and it's a very depressed society. It's a very lonely society and it's a, I'm never going to achieve enough society. Is it because we, we have so much? Granted, the Greeks and the Romans had a lot too. <laughs>